I don't pretend to understand the world of patent law, but I do know that inventions in the software and computer world seem different than for a new mousetrap or some kind of widget. So it's important to have people who understand computers and software examining and granting or rejecting these patents. Back in 1990, some large companies were getting concerned that patent offices were getting inundated with patent applications for software-related inventions, and they didn't have the capacity to handle them the way the computer industry thought they should be handled. For example, someone with a, a PhD in computer science couldn't even take the patent examiner exam if he or she didn't have enough engineering classes in their background, even though they might be perfect for software patents, for example. I remember when Lotus sued Borland, claiming that Borland's Quattro Pro spreadsheet violated the patent that Lotus had on their 123 spreadsheet. I think it got extra messy because the powers of B just didn't understand the software world very well. So it's good that we have organizations like the Software Patent Institute to help educate the examiners on new technologies and what exists out there already either as patentable or as prior art and also as a place to maintain a database of existing technology. On this episode of the Great Lakes Geek Show, we'll be speaking with the Executive Director of the Software Patent Institute, Raleigh Cole, and one of his statements may jump out at you like it jumped out at me. Raleigh says that when you consider the number of patent applications filed and the number of examiners available, the examiners have about seven hours to look at a patent application. That's not very much time for complicated technology. Luckily, the SPI is helping them find that obscure article or resource they may need to do the job right. As you will hear, Raleigh is also the Director of Technology Policy for the Sagamore Institute for Policy Research. It's a think tank located right here in Great Lakes Geek Territory in Indianapolis. Coming to you from the world-renowned Magnum Building on beautiful Payne Avenue in the heart of Cleveland, Ohio, it's the entrepreneur himself, Dan Hansen, bringing you the Great Lakes Geek Show. morning, Raleigh. You are the executive director of something called the Software Patent Institute, or SPI. What's SPI? About 1990, the, a, a number of large computer firms got very concerned that the patent office was suddenly getting a flood of patent applications for software-related inventions and didn't have the capacity to handle them in the way the computer industry thought they ought to be handled. It turns out that you can be certified to be a patent examiner if you are an engineer uh, or a scientist. But if you were a computer science major but without the engineering um, degrees, and, and in a number of places, including Michigan, in which is one of the more preeminent computer science departments, computer science grew out of mathematics, not engineering. So you could get all the way up to a Ph.D. in computer science without having enough engineering courses to be allowed to take the patent examiner exam. So they're very concerned that, that how could the industry help the patent office deal with this flood of applications for software-related inventions. And uh, there was a conference in early 90 among a number of these firms and uh, sponsored and led by a former president of the Association of Computing Machinery, uh, prominent political scientist who, whose PhD was in mathematics, who had been involved in a number of the major lawsuits, uh, particularly uh, Lotus, uh, when Lotus 
uh, sued Borland for for copying um, its spreadsheet program. He convened this group, and what they decided was that one of the things they could do is, is form an institute that would, A, provide courses to the examiners on what's already been invented in computer science and uh, in software, and two, have a database that sort of documented what was already invented. And that organization, he needed, he wanted to have that, he did not want it affiliated with any single university because he wanted his professor buddies from various universities to contribute to somewhere that was neutral turf. So he asked a number of his students who who might, what he might do about that. And they, a couple of them were at this uh, place called the Industrial Technology Institute, which was a nonprofit uh, that was helping small manufacturers automate. And what they told him is, well, you know, the, our general counsel is a personal computer nut. Maybe he'd be interested. So he came to see me to see if that organization would sort of be the host for this institute he wanted to build. And uh, we hit it off really well. And, and after the first meeting, we formed, we eventually formed a separate corporation that was the Software Patent Institute. Over the years, we've done a number of courses for patent examiners and others. And we still run a database that has all kinds of old computer manuals and, and technical disclosure bulletins and technical reports from both academia and corporations and a number of journal articles, all of the ACM publications prior to 1990, for instance, so that the Patent Office can have an immediate way to look up documentation of what's already been invented. And we, we run that out of a server at Michigan State University, even though our first president was from Michigan University. And that continues to provide data that some of the units at, at the Patent Office use a lot. And some of the, we later had some large law firms join the Institute as well. And some of those law firms use our database a lot when they get threatened with software patents, where they can look up the data in our database and say, go away because if you don't, I'll prove that your invention had already been invented and your patent is invalid. So that database continues to operate at www.spi.org and continues to contain um, a large chunk of material from the 50s through about 1990. After about 1990, everyone else started putting data on the internet as well, so uh, we felt our niche was to concentrate on that earlier material. Also, we felt that a lot of the patents coming out in the 90s were for Internet-type stuff that was directly analogous in the minds of the computer scientists we were working with, with some of the time-sharing stuff done in the 60s and 70s, so that our major contribution to this whole debate would be to be the, the source of computer documentation from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And that's largely what's in the database. Do you actually have a, a physical collection of, say, old WordStar, VisiCalc, or, or is it all virtual or, or scanned-in documents? Well, the, the, um, there's actually a storage unit uh, that is rented by SBI that is about the size of a double, well, of a large single-car garage that is literally filled to the ceiling. It is 10 by 15 by 8 feet, and I think there's maybe a spare two by six feet in the front that doesn't have material. But, but having a huge library uh, doesn't help if it isn't immediately accessible. So we, uh, 
we actually put it all into an online database so it can be searched online. During the 90s, the patent office was also converting all of its patents online. So we don't have any patent. USPTO was doing that. This is non-patent, what the software people call prior art. And it's all, uh, it's all uh, there and immediately accessible to, and, and we are used by the U.S. Patent Office, the European Patent Office, the Japanese Patent Office. We even had a uh, patent office from Taiwan join us for a year to be part of, uh, so they could have higher access to the, you know, support the effort that was giving them access to our database. And it's material that is just not obtainable, readily obtainable anywhere else. It's buried in a library somewhere, but if you consider the number of applications that are filed each year and the number of patent examiners to look at them and the goal of giving you some kind of answer within two two or three years, you had the examiner has about seven hours to look at an application. And so in seven hours, they can't find the obscure article in the University of Alaska library or buried in uh, Xerox's uh, on the park campus in San Francisco, in the Bay Area right. uh, for Xerox. Uh, they need to have it more immediately accessible. And that was our goal, to make it more immediately accessible. So you don't want our listeners to send in their old copy of DBase 2 or Sidekick or any of that? I and My board is more than half lawyers. We are very sensitive to copyright permissions. So I don't want material except with it either out of copyright or where it's the copyright owner who can tell me it's okay to put it in the database. So I, we actually collected some of that early in order to then have it to then go to publishers. And some of the book publishers were quite generous about where they had material that was out of print, but they still were the copyright owner giving us permission to put it into the database. And we went back and forth with ACM, the Association for Computing Machinery. Even though I had two former presidents on my board. ACM wanted to load its own material, and eventually we kind of worked out a pre-post-1990 split. So they loaded all their new material, and we loaded all their old material. And similarly, I got permission from Xerox, I got permission from IBM, I got permission from Microsoft, from Adobe, uh, from Apple to put older documents. But it, we have, uh, it's either out of copyright or we have copyright permission before we load it in the database. So you're right. Much as I might like the old DB manual, only if you can figure out who still owns the rights to it, and they can give us permission. Got it. Now, you're also involved now with something called the Sagamore Institute for Policy Research. Tell us about that. The Sagamore Institute is a national think tank that happens to be located in Indianapolis. It's either one year old or 40 years old, depending on how you count. There was a think tank formed on the Hudson River in the 60s, so it's about 40 years old now, called the Hudson Institute. It moved to Indiana in the 80s for reasons that are not relevant now. And then a couple of years ago, it wanted to move to D.C., but the people doing the non-foreign policy slash defense work, the national and international work, but in welfare and education and so forth, wanted to stay in Indianapolis because they didn't want all the think tanks to be on one coast or the other. They want at least some in the heartland. And so they've been in existence for about a year and a half now, and, and it's a national think tank like Brookings or others you may have heard of, but located in Indianapolis. They have not done anything in, pol in technology per se, so I've just joined them 
to build up some studies in, in policy. Now, this is just the opposite of what we discussed earlier on APCUG, which carefully avoided getting involved in policy issues. We'd like to do studies and make recommendations where policies may help, where allocation of radio frequencies may promote the use of the wireless internet, where changes in state telecommunication laws may lead to more broadband rather than less, where my mandate is not just computer technology, we'll be doing stuff in alternative energy and nanotechnology where we have a major national um, center and and then life life sciences where we have a, a major effort undergoing based on our long experience with medical devices and pharmaceuticals with Lilly and Depew and, and uh, firms like that. So we'll be studying and making recommendations on changes in what we call social action. So it could be state, federal, or local laws, or it could be efforts by nonprofits or whatever to promote technology improvements, technology use, and help uh, reduce the bad impacts of technology. Maybe we need to take that APCUG model and incorporate it in some of the new technologies like nanotech and MEMS and all that. You can put your George Washington hat on again. Well, one could imagine certainly a nanotechnology-type institute to help the patent office get up to speed in the new technology. You want your patent examiners smart because you want them to separate. Even those, we have people on the SPI board, Software Patent Institute board, who are very much in favor of software patents and others are very much against. But everyone believed that you didn't want a patent on stuff that's already invented. That, that just screws up the system. Well, similarly, you can imagine a similar effort in nanotechnology. Make sure that since no one at the patent office goes in with a degree in nanotechnology, maybe the industry can help bring the examiners up to speed and make sure that they have ready access to what prior art there is so that they're less likely to grant patents on things that are already invented. There's also some concern already that we want the regulations to keep pace with the technology. And both there's concerns about heading off bad impact, but also not suppressing innovations that would move us forward. So there's some concern about how lightly and tightly it gets regulated uh, and how we can promote the good stuff and hold back the bad stuff by how we uh, regulate or fund or otherwise, you know, treat it from a social action uh, point of view. The uh, Some of that more subtle, there was a major statute in 1980, we in Indiana like calls it because it's called the Birch Bay Act, um, the uh, sorry, the Bay Dole Act. Senator Birch Bay of, of Indiana and Robert Dole of Kansas combined on an act that allowed the universities to own patents uh, that they got out of federally funded research before the feds owned the patents and didn't do anything with them uh, or didn't patent the technology, but allowed the university to take a patent as long as it would then vigorously license it for outsiders to, to commercialize it. And that's led to a tremendous growth in university-related technology development. So there's an example where a public policy actually did make things better, and we'd like to find more of those. Okay, and you can learn more about both the Software Patent Institute and the Sagamore Institute by following the links on this webpage, or if you're listening, it's simple, just spi.org and sipr.org. Today we've been speaking with Raleigh Cole. Thanks, Raleigh. You've been listening to the Great Lakes Geek Show. Come back soon at www.greatlakesgeek.com.